Hi guys, I'm Jo Croft. You are listening to the Puppy Coach Podcast. Join me as I share my top tips, thoughts and experiences from my career as a vet nurse and canine behaviour specialist, helping owners form a strong, safe relationship with their dog. Hi guys, so I'm really excited to say that I've got Dave McIver joining me this morning and we're going to be chatting about police dogs, training dogs in the security world and the diversity of the dog training industry as a whole. So Dave was a serving police officer for 39 years, 34 of those years were within the dog section and 26 years as a fully operational police dog handler. Dave's career path began in 1974. Dave, that was the uh, year I was born. (laughs) So he began in 1974, joining the force as a cadet. And over the course of his career, he was given two promotions. uh, One in 1986 as a sergeant. And in 1989, he became an inspector, all within the police dog world. He remained an operational dog handler right up until his retirement. Since retirement, Dave has continued to share his knowledge, working one-to-one with clients in the pet dog world and within the security dog sector, training dogs and their handlers. Dave also has his own dogs, two of whom are into their retirement after serving with him in the force and a brand new German Shepherd puppy who I'm sure is keeping him on his toes. I'm looking forward to chatting to you, Dave, and hearing all about your exciting professional journey and also picking your brains on training dogs for service work. So I guess we'll uh, kick it off. The whole dog handling, dog industry side of the police must have been a big focus for you when you joined. Um, what was the reason for that, Dave? Why, why were you so focused on the dog section? Well, when I joined the service, um, obviously being a police officer was exciting in itself. And I suppose, to, to be brutally honest, there was too much paperwork. Being a beat cop, uh, everything was revolving around paper. And then I looked at the dog section and they get all the excitement without all the writing. And so although I got a, a dog background in a pet dog world, I really thought, well, I could channel that into dog handling, enjoy the life and not get too bogged down with all the paperwork that comes with it. So I applied, as you said, there on my my sort of short intro uh, for the dog section. Normally, officers had sort of five to ten years service before they were eligible to apply and join the dog section. But I took a chance and applied um, and was very fortunate to get an interview, which I thought, well, that's a good start. And then much to my uh, amazement, I actually got the job. And uh, I've got to be honest, the trepidation started then because I sort of long admired dog handlers and, and was worried that perhaps I just could not achieve that level myself. So it, it was a big learning curve, but one I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed and, and followed through for, as you said there, on my intro for many, many years. So what age were you, Dave, then? Because you obviously joined as a cadet, which I think is, is that around about 17? Yeah, I, I joined as a cadet at 17. Um, so 1980, I went on the dog section. So yeah, I, I was 23 when I went on to the dog section. Okay, and so just tell us a bit about um, that kind of platform. Are you initially are you given a dog that's already trained, and then you kind of learn with an experienced dog, or do you learn with a new dog together? How does that work? Well, you start normally with a new dog. It's better for a, a novice handler to start with a novice dog, uh, and that's something I've followed through throughout the career when I was allocating dogs to officers and vice versa. Um, starting both of you green, as we call it, is much better. Okay. Uh, as a novice, if you take on an experienced dog, you may not have that level of skill to control that dog, to work that dog effectively. So I was allocated a, a dog, um, about six weeks prior to my course, and uh, you're told straight away, and this is a, a sort of a typical saying in the police dog service, don't fall in love with the dog, mm-hmm. you may not make it. 
Oh. And you fall in love with the dog because <laughs> that's what you've always wanted to do and you're now doing this wonderful job and you've got this beautiful, impressive-looking German Shepherd. And I ran alongside with this dog for nearly five weeks and then two days before I was due to go to training school, uh, the inspector said, this dog's not for you. He's not going to make the grade. Oh. Here's your new dog. Oh, and God. they gave me a dog called Rocky, uh, who was the smallest German Shepherd you've ever seen. And my heart fell, uh, you know, oh. because I'd run alongside uh, Sam, as he was called, for, for nearly six weeks, looking forward to a long career together. And suddenly I was now teamed with a dog that I didn't know. I was off to training school, which is a residential course for 13 weeks. And I had a lot to learn and very quickly. So I suppose it, it sort of just shows you shouldn't fall in love with your first dog, but you yeah. can't help it. You know, no. That's why you choose the dog, the job that you do. So, so why did Sam not make it? Because that's always fascinated me. You know, because it, they can go through, as you say. I mean, he's, he would have gone through quite an intense period of training. That's not just you know five minutes a day. That's all day, every day training these dogs. A lot of money and time goes into them, and you know, and then they just don't make the grade. And uh, you know, I've never really it happens with guide dogs as well, obviously for various different reasons, which I, I think I understand more than actually the police dog world. But I've seen some of these dogs work that haven't made it. What was the reason that Sam didn't make it? Do you know? Or yeah, yeah, I do know. I say, you've got to really accede to obviously the knowledge of your elders in that situation because you're the new person, and it, but it, it was down to drive right. determination. It um, didn't have the focus that was required. Now, all of these didn't really mean a lot to me as a novice dog handler, but but to the trained instructors, they felt that this dog wasn't right for me. And I suppose the vindication of that is, although the dog had been in the service for nearly six weeks, and obviously there'd been investment in his assessment and, and me looking after him, feeding him, various other things, he was allocated to an experienced handler who needed a dog to see if he could bring out any sort of traits in the dog that would help him on his future career and that didn't work either and subsequently Sam went to a pet home and okay. had a long happy life as a family pet okay. and so I suppose that just shows that you know that there's no sort of replacement for experience that these instructors who have been around for many years yeah. can see what they want to see and if it's not there and I suppose in the service and, and it's very much the same still today We've got to produce results very quickly. And whereas in time, you may well draw out that sort of particular trait that you want. I know it's a horrible thing to say, but it's a bit of a production line. You've got a very finite space of time to get the team together, yeah. to get them out operational because they are an expensive resource. And so sometimes hard judgments have to be made. But I've got to be honest, I think invariably they're made for the right reasons and are yeah. correct. And there's a there's a um, owner, pet dog home out there with an amazingly well-behaved and well-trained dog, I should imagine, as well. Yeah, it's all he positive. Went to a, a, a serving inspector in the police force and uh, it went to him and his family and, as I say, yeah, had a long, happy life with them. And they were over the moon because he did everything that you'd want, quote, from a pet dog. Yeah. You know, he was, he, and that's, I suppose, what didn't make him the, the sort of drivey, Type Absolutely. of dog that we wanted for the police service. He was a nice, plodding, sedentary, lovely family pet, and yeah. he just didn't have the drives in him that we required. And do you have a, an optimum age, Dave? Where I know that the, now that there's lots of breeding programs that go in, on in each force, so they're bringing them through from puppies. But with regards to kind of back then, were you looking at dogs of being an optimum age? Yeah, in, in the early days, we, we were looking, and, and I suppose to a certain extent still do, to 12 to 18 months was a good time because you want some sort of mental sort of maturity in the dog as yeah. well, as well as physical ability. Yeah. Um, but conversely, the police service tend to have a lower 
age limit than perhaps as do the military for their, their working dogs because we have such a diverse role of disciplines that we require them to learn. And also we, we want to get value for money. The dogs, we need them to yeah. work for as long as possible. So the later you start, the shorter the working life. But conversely, you can't start too early because they're immature and, yeah. and physically incapable of doing it. And regards when they kind of retire, does that really go down to, I, I mean, I guess particularly with shepherds, the health of the dog? You know, there's some that are very old at five, aren't there? And some that maybe go on to late. Or do you have a, a marker that says, no, you know, after this time, we do just retire them regardless? Well, we can, obviously, we monitor very closely the health. Uh, and yeah, as you say, the German shepherd can be prone to problems, uh, you know, quite early on in what would be a normal dog's lifespan. Um, certainly when I was the inspector, you know, I had a pretty, not fairly rigid rule that for eight. Uh, if a dog is still fit at eight, that's great and I'm happy for the dog. But they can then tail off very quickly. So yeah. I would look to retire them maybe slightly prematurely, but so they've still got quality of life in retirement as opposed to pushing and pushing and then suddenly the dog goes down through an ailment yeah. and also you've then got an officer who's now non-operational yeah. and police officers are very expensive resources yeah, absolutely. and we don't run courses every week we only run courses potentially two to three times a year okay so there would be a big downtime for that officer so yeah. that, that's not productive for the service so i would look to retiring a dog at a set time which allows me to sort of structure a program much better. And what about um, reproductive status? So what's the kind of idea around neutering? Are they neutered? Do you keep them entire? Is that problematic? To be fair, it's not problematic. Uh, certainly all my working dogs, and I had five operational German Shepherds, were all entire. We didn't have a policy of castration purely when they joined the service. Um, if a dog came that had already been castrated or neutered, then it didn't seem to cause us any problems and okay. it didn't seem to affect the dog's working ability. But we wouldn't have a, a sort of a, a blasé sort of attitude that, no, you join the service, we're going to castrate you. That wouldn't happen. And what about bitches? So, I mean, I know, certainly know a lot of the, the police dogs I've met have been male. Um, yes. But is that the kind of drive aspect? And I guess they're less moody. Bitches are, are actually moodier, so they can be problematic. But would you take females? I mean, I guess back then you probably weren't overly picky if you were taking them from adoption, as I understand. Yeah, even in the early days, I've got to be honest, we, we, I, I never encountered a, a, a bitch on the section. Wow. Um, it just didn't happen. And sort of maybe some of that was sort of typical old sort of chauvinistic approach to, to the way things were done. You know, from my experience, and not always the case, bitches can be smaller than the male. Yeah. Clearly, if, if the, the bitch hasn't been uh, neutered, you know, or spayed, we need to do that. So that's initially an expense for the service. Yeah. So it, it, it's a balance, really, with, with bitches coming in. And I've got to be honest, you know, the girl that I got now, as you say, she's 11 and a half, she's well into her retirement. She was to be a, a brood bitch, but unfortunately, due to health reasons, she wasn't able to do that, so she was retired to me. But she had the lovely attitude. She was she would have made a great working dog, and I would have gladly worked her. Right. And certainly while I was inspector on the section, we did have a number of bitches working very effectively on the section. But it's about making a judgment about the initial outlay for the spaying prior to the training yeah and so it, it is a bit difficult and did you do did you do bite work uh, as well as scent work or were you just focused on bite work because obviously the spaniels and stuff do the scent work don't they rather than the shepherds yeah Where did in, you in the early days we, 
we didn't have the luxury, certainly in, in, in 1980 when I joined, we didn't have specialist dogs. And it was predominantly German Shepherds, although nowadays you see quite an array of, of breeds. But it was German Shepherds, and they were trained for the full range of, of police disciplines, i.e. tracking, searching, biting, obedience, agility. And additionally, some of them were trained for drug detection. And both my first two dogs, Rocky and Diggy, were both trained as what we call dual purpose. So they did the full range of police duties and they were trained for drug detection. Right. And then due to the changes in the climate with terrorism and the like, there was a need for explosive detection dogs. And so it was quite right to see that that should be a separate entity, that the dogs should do explosive detection only. Right. And, and then that sort of gathered momentum and it was, well, if we've got explosive detection dogs, then really we should have drug detection dogs. And so the dual purpose element was phased out and as a consequence, as you quite rightly say, the, the gun dog breeds were by far the best type of dog for that, that role. So yeah. that's where the specialist search dogs and more spaniels and Labradors started to enter the service. So just looking at the breed, because I know you've been quite heavily involved in the breeding programs and stuff. I mean, I know I'm sure lots of people were aware of, of what actually started to happen anatomically to the, the shepherd with their sloping backs. And I'm guessing that that made it quite difficult for them to be agile and climb fences and stuff. So did the force move away from shepherds because of the way they were being bred? I know that they're bringing in other breeds, so the Manoirs coming in, and as you say, different yeah. other breeds that are coming in now. Well, certainly in the early days, the German Shepherd was, was the archetypical police dog, and, and certainly the early breeding programmes with the Metropolitan Police and the large Metropolitan-type forces, Greater Manchester, Strathclyde, Merseyside, that they had breeding programmes. And I suppose part of the reason the quality of dogs was not there for what we wanted you know, as you quite rightly say, on, on the sort of pet show type of side, the, the dog structure wasn't quite appropriate for what we wanted. It didn't have the power on, on the hindquarters, which we needed, obviously, for, for negotiating obstacles. And even, you know, to, to do what we call a straight chase, to, to run after a running person, bite and, and take them down. That required a lot of physical energy from the animal. So the breed programs were, were to breed physically, uh, the right type of dog uh, with the right stature, uh, but also the, the right mentality and the right and appropriate drives. Yeah. Uh, whereas we want dogs clearly that are very uh, energetic, to use the terminology feisty, yeah. but under control. Yeah. And whereas breeding tended to be more for pet as opposed to high drive working dogs. Yeah. Um, so the shepherd for many years was your archetypical dog. Yeah. Um, but I think then with the pet passport and the ability to go to Europe and bring dogs in without quarantine, and we certainly brought a lot of dogs when I was in Avon and Somerset in from Eastern Europe and Germany, yeah. which were a lot more drivey. Um, and because of the way that they've been brought up, and they suited our needs yeah. uh, very nicely, but, but fundamentally, although we've still got the nice drivey dogs, we work hard to get that control as well because sure. control is, is paramount to what we do. And, and rightly so, you know, e even in my time, I've looked at working other dogs on the section and we've had Akitas, we've had Doucherons, wow. uh, Dobermans. Uh, we had Malinois before they became very vogue and, and uh, <laughs> they are now a lot of forces are using Malinois. To some extent, a greater number of Malinois and Shepherds yeah. and proportionally more imported dogs yeah. because the pet passport scheme made that so easy. Yeah. 
So just touching on something that you've just mentioned there about having the control over your dog. Have you have you ever, I'm sure you must have done at some point, but I'm going to kind of throw you in at the deep end here. Have you ever kind of been in a situation with a dog where that control's been questionable and you've sat there and thought, well, how the hell am I going to get out of this? Have you had a dog let you down before? I've never never had one of my own dogs let me down <laughs> on, on control. Um, but there have been times where, you know, police dogs are licensed. We, we undergo a licensing process. So at the end of your basic course, the dog is licensed as fit for operational duty. Yeah. They, they are required to attend a prescribed number of training days per year with annual licensing. And, and if they don't meet the strict and stringent levels of control, and it boils down to control efficiency yeah. and safety. If the dogs aren't under control and safe, then their license can be withdrawn yeah. and we undergo remedial training. And if at the end of that period of time, uh, and it's normally 30 days from when the license is withdrawn, if we cannot achieve the satisfactory or required level, then the dog will be retired from the service. Yeah. And that has happened. And, and I, you know, I have been in that situation as the officer in charge where I have had to retire dogs from the service because they've reached a level where we cannot safely use them on the streets. What happens there? Is that just, it becomes, you know, and I'm thinking specifically about the bite work and, you know, really harnessing the aggression and, and a dog enjoys it, right? If a dog is built to do that and they're doing innately what they're designed to do, there'll be a level of, of chemical involvement in the brain and, and a level of pleasure when they actively achieve that goal. Same as your border collie situation when their, yeah. their result is herding the sheep. So there must come a point with some dogs where that pleasure and that desire to do the job maybe overrides you know the leadership of a handler does do you find that conflict happens it, it can happen and i must be honest it's happened less with breeding our own puppies because obviously we've structured rape from the very early days and yes the bite is important yeah. but we teach a, a level of control that the bite is not just carry on and do what you like it still has to be measured in what we do yeah so we we don't tend to nowadays lose too many dogs because they've become overtly aggressive you know i, I cast my mind back to you know my early days in, as an inspector and there was no doubt there were officers that liked quote biting dogs right you know it's very macho yeah, yeah. Uh, but but i always believe no there's no point having a biting dog if you, you're not safe and conversely if you can't track and find a suspect then what's the point yeah. of having a biting dog so i i concentrate on keeping those those levels lower they're there when they're required but the dog has been brought up to understand that it's just another part of what it does. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess for me, and I, my dad was an officer in the Met, so I actually applied for cadets the year it was shut down. They stopped oh, doing right. it, and I, my focus was was either going to be dog handling or, or mounted. But I really wrestled with this thought that you're sending your basically your best friend into you know close contact with a criminal. Um, there's got to be some emotional involvement in that and how how do you cope with that Dave I mean essentially if you're telling your dog go on you need to go and, and stop that guy or that girl in their tracks whatever the scenario I mean obviously you're trusting your dog but we we know from from Finn's law that it doesn't always go well is it just a job can you separate that how do you cope with that I don't think you, you, you approach it as a job because you know being a police dog handler isn't just a job it's a vocation yeah the dog is with you all the time um, you know, as we know, they, they live with us all our time. So it's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, the only time you're potentially separated is annual leave. And even then, I've taken my dogs on annual leave if, if I was in this country. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I've got to be honest, you know, when I was a young officer, you know, a young dog hand, I sort of had the similar sort of concerns that you did. And I suppose in time, I, I've learned that firstly, we work as a team. So wherever my dog goes, I go with them anyway. So yes, they might be chasing somebody who's running, but yep. I'm backing them up and I'm running as fast as I can. So I'm there to help out as well. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, you know, there, there I had one occasion where I, I did have to take out a suspect who was armed with a shotgun and it was he found subsequently loaded and he would have used it on us but you have to make decisions and and you can't you can't put your emotion to the fore when there's times like that it's there it will be there because you don't want your dog hurt and you'll do your utmost to make sure it doesn't happen and as i say I, i was operational for 26 years with five dogs not one of my dogs was ever injured by a suspect and I, I work in some very rough areas and yeah. my arrest rates were phenomenal. Um, it does happen, as we know, with Finn's law and regrettably that police dogs do get injured. But I think with the number of dogs, the number of deployments, that concern is there, yeah. and, but the incidents are low. And so, you know, I think that helps you make that decision because you know you're going to work together anyway. I would never send my dog anywhere that I wouldn't go with him and, and we always go together. Yeah. Do you feel particularly vulnerable if you haven't got those four legs next to you? Do you really feel like it makes a, a big difference to how you feel, you know, on a security level? Um, I suppose it can do. But then, as you say, with, with myself and certainly with my operational service, my dog was always there. Yeah. Um, you know, I had three, three and a half years on the beat and, and driving cars before I became a dog handler. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, you are more vulnerable then and certainly in the early days personal protection that officers now have was very rudimentary in the 80s and and 70s yeah but i've got to be honest you know i i faced up to things with my dog Mm. that normally you know normally might have caused me some trepidation yeah um but i was lucky you know i i moved around the country i got promoted I, i stayed doing what i really loved and that that was the whole thing was ambition and promotion is great but i only wanted to do it within my specialism because i enjoyed it so much yeah absolutely. i moved around the country and worked in different places and i was lucky enough that my family were young enough to move with me um and you know i put down roots when i thought no that's it you know my children's schooling now has got to take precedence hence i, I spent a long time in one place yeah but going, going back to your question yeah I, i'm sure you know there are times and there were times in my early years when I didn't have a dog and I, I and my, you know, my knees went up and down a little bit. <laughs> but when I had my dog with me, I've got to be honest, nothing ever worried me. What, you know, have you ever had a dog where you've just sat back and gone, I am just amazingly proud? And, I, and I'm talking about, I know you're proud every day of them, but, you know, a real standout moment. Yeah, you're right. You are, you are proud of them all the time. And I suppose, you know, throughout my years, I've, I've had some very good successes with my dogs and you know the, the one thing that sort of really makes you smile on occasions is you found a suspect that normally would have got away yeah. um you know and more recently prior to retirement was you know i, I did a search with with my dog in an area and obviously in, in the modern age we've got helicopters to help us and various other things uh, and the helicopter were doing the sweep with their thermal imaging and said look boss you're wasting your time that area there's no point in being there yeah um and i said well i'll keep going because my dog's telling me that you know there's there's interest here anyway the search continued and five minutes later lots of barking ran over there and my dog had found a suspect 
And that's, you know, a little bit of sort of interdepartmental rivalry. And it makes you think, well, <laughs> without me, they would have got away. You know, you were prepared to pull out and go somewhere else. So things like that. And it's difficult to find the most sort of outstanding thing because I've, I've had some really good jobs with my dogs. Yeah. Um, but I think one that sort of springs to mind, and, it, and it's like we always say it to dog handlers, is trust your dog. And there's no doubt in my mind, we are the biggest encumbrance when it comes to dog handling. It, it's, the, it's the hand at the end of the lead that causes the biggest problems. Oh, I 100% so the dog agree. Is intelligent, sensible. Uh, and, you know, one that really does spring to mind, and I love tracking, as we've already discussed. You know, yeah. Tracking to me is, is the epitome of what police dogs are great at. Um, and there's nothing better when you find a suspect. And I remember many, many years ago, uh, it was what we call an early shift, which was a six o'clock start. So about seven o'clock, I got a call to go to a local crematorium, would you believe, where there'd been an, uh, an arson overnight. Um, and when I got there, the fire crew were there, they'd finished damping down and they said, look, you're wasting your time. This, this has been going a fair while. Um, but yeah, it's up to you. If you want to search for a suspect, search for a suspect. So bear in mind, police dogs were trained primarily to follow trails of half an hour to two hours old. Most of the time, there are reasons behind that. But I thought, well, I'd give my, my dog a try. And Diggy was a very good tracking dog. Um, cast him on the grass nearby. And we, we got a faint pickup of a track. And I thought, well, good boy, well done. And with a little bit of encouragement, yeah, he was picking, picking. And, and we followed this trail uh, across all the grassy area through woodland, um, to a housing estate over the back garden uh, of a, a house to their back gate. And it was one of these uh, houses, or I call them like a gimmel, where there's a, an alleyway between the houses. Yeah. And it went out onto the road. And I thought, nah, no, no go. This is it. You know, we've we come to the road. It's now sort of quarter to eight in the morning. People are, are out and about. So I thought, well, I'll do some house to house inquiries. And the house where I come through their garden and to the gate, I knocked on the door. And the guy came to the door and he gave that honest, you won't believe answer, it was me, Gov, I did it. <laughs> and he admitted to setting fire to the crematorium. Oh, wow. And it was seven hours previously that he'd set the blaze. Wow. It took that long for it to take a hold. Now, if I'd arrived and had been told it was seven hours old, I don't suppose I would have even got no. the out of the van. No, not But at because all. the fire officer thought it was only up to a couple of hours old, I thought, well, let's give it a try. I might find some evidence on track or something like that that will help us. But to follow a trail of a suspect seven hours after the incident, that to me is a, a defining moment. The guy pleaded guilty uh, and was sentenced and, and served a term of imprisonment. Um, and without the dog, he never would have been put before the courts. No, and I think um, just you mentioned the whole scent stuff and you and I were potentially doing something together on that. Um, it's a whole nother subject on its own, and uh, which we haven't got time for in this podcast today, but I'm hopefully going to pin you down to talk to you at another point about the specifics of scent. So hopefully I'll get you back, Dave, with any luck. That's so right. I just wanted to kind of um, ask, really, obviously you were in uh, the police force for a really long time. And I know, I mean, I, I spent a few days just as an observer watching how they train now. And it's really amazing to watch how they work and they switch, you know, a bite for a bite to, to yeah, ensure yeah. that they can get the dog off. It's all, it's all really positive. But, you know, I think a lot of people are aware that potentially when you started, it maybe wasn't quite so positive. How was that for you? What did you experience with that? And, you know, we've got a 
to we've got to be realistic here. No dog training from the Barbara Woodhouse days. You know, there was lots of kind of you, you will do it. It's my way or the highway from yeah. humans, yeah. and and we lo- we know better now, and we've evolved and we work in a you know a much more balanced way. But what was your experience with that, and and how did that kind of make you feel? Do you look back and reflect on anything that you think actually you know I do it better now? I wish I hadn't done it like that, or did you yeah. accept that actually that was the way we trained back then because we didn't know any different yeah I, I think you hit the nail on the head there on, on several points certainly you know when i joined the section that it wasn't it wasn't done through thought you know we didn't think about what we were trying to achieve mm-hmm. um and it was harsh there's no doubt about it dog training wasn't this the art that it is now no um but although there was no you know there was no outward brutality it, it was a harsh regime of, of training and and when you read some of the, the books that um, were in circulation and the, and the police service looked to some of these previous sort of sections that have been run particularly in Europe about perhaps this is the way forward but also we didn't know any different no you know that that was the way it was done as you said with Barbara Woodhouse and I remember watching her when I had my first great game and and everything w- was done with the use of as it was called in those days the choke chain yeah more more likely called the check chain now but I'm proud of the fact that both my, my two older dogs now have never had a check chain on in their life. Yeah. Never needed it. Um, because what I started from them, their training as a puppy, and, and I used my mind more. Yeah. What am I trying to achieve? How can I achieve it? How do I get them to connect with me? Yeah. And so obviously you're looking at inducements, rewards, and, and a better way forward. And I, and I feel fortunate that, you know, I've gone through a long transition I joined in 1980. The, the dog section in Hertfordshire at that time was only about eight, 18 years old. So it was quite early days. Yeah. Um, when you think the Metropolitan go back, oh, pre-Second World War, but to about 1946 before they really got going. Yeah. But now you look at the amount of technique that's used and, and the thought processes and, and everything that's done by instructors to draw the best out of their dogs. Yeah. And I've got to be honest, I, I think now is so much better than it was. Yeah, um, and the what you get out of your dog now and draw out of them is so much better. They're more stable. They're more level-headed. Mm-hmm. They're a lot more sensible, and you can see the fun. You know, there's no doubt dogs did enjoy training in the early days. But you said prior, you know, earlier on in this podcast, what they really enjoyed was the biting because that was their way yeah. of releasing and having their own fun. Yeah, Whereas absolutely. The majority of what we were doing wasn't fun for them. Whereas nowadays, you know, we've replaced it with such. You know, with, with Searching for a suspect, you get a ball. You know, yeah. it's the same with the search dogs, but with the general purpose dogs. You know, in my early days, uh, there was no ball. People didn't use rewards. Why? Why do we want to use toys? You know, yeah. it just didn't happen. You know, certainly from my perspective, we put a heavy focus on you know what equipment are we using and what are we using for reward. And I think for me the dogs are so intuitive and they work so much off your energy which is why I really feel where I'm at now in my career and where I know that you're at when I throw a ball I'm not just throwing Hogan a ball to say good boy have your ball the ball's amazing you know it's a little yellow tennis ball what he's thriving off is the fact that I'm going here's your ball and this ball's amazing and it's really high value, but I'm letting you have it because you're awesome. And it's that energy that you create. You know, chucking a ball up in the air and walking off, he's not going to have the same impact of rewarding a dog as you standing there going, good, that's amazing, changing your energy. That's what, when I was in the with the police watching how they train their dogs, that's what I got was, you know, they're buzzing just as much as the dog. They're enjoying the training. 
certainly what I saw is it is absolutely about pulling out the innate drive of the dog and rewarding it and using that human interaction as part of that process around it. Yeah, so- yeah very, very much so. Uh, and, and I think this is, is reflected as well in, you know, you've seen in the training environment and obviously training is to prepare the dog for the operational environment. And in the operational environment, you know, when you found a suspect, the last thing you can do is chuck a ball. Yeah, exactly. So, so although the ball is important, you're right, it, it's all about you and that bond and how you make that dog feel. Because the last thing you would do at that point is throw a ball for the dog to chase because then the suspect becomes unmanageable for you. Yeah. Um, but you, re- So the ball isn't the be-all and end-all, the same as any reward is. It's, it's that sort of level between the two of you that, that is the key. Yeah. And as you quite rightly say, the icing on the cake is, this is mine, you like it, you can play with it. Yeah. But it's now back with and, and it's that sort of relationship between handler and dog that achieves the objective, not just the tennis ball or, or the, the Kong or whatever. Yeah. So before we lose you, because I know you're going to have to go soon, um, but I just want to briefly touch on the security dog stuff. Now, my experience yeah. of spending time with people that trained security was actually horrific. I got invited to view a training session in a field in Chelmsford, which I rocked up to with a closed gate, had to ring this guy. He came down, let me in and locked me in afterwards. So I drove in to basically about, I don't know, 12 big vans that were rocking with dogs shouting inside. And there wasn't one, there was, I lie, there was one female there doing bacon sarnies um, and me. It was a really interesting setup. And apart from my heart racing, I thought, what the hell am I doing here? I was there on the pretense of observing the setup because I wanted to send a client there with a dog. I had a potential rehoming case for them. Um, And I had this conversation with this guy who had his chest fluffed out and he was just, you know, the best security dog handler in the world. Started very quickly to realise that actually I wanted to leave. This wasn't my my way at all. We had this very in-depth conversation about how he could make any dog bite. And at the time I had a had my first lab who was about six at the time and he didn't have a bite in him, Dave. Like not a chance in hell. And I asked him how he would achieve this. And this is quote unquote what he said to me. He said, well, basically, Joe, I just keep pushing until it reacts. I said, you still wouldn't get anything from him. You'd have him in a corner. Well, then I would have him off his feet and I would basically spin round with him on the end of a lead until he gave up. And then I would go at him again. And that was his answer. And then he promptly picked up what was like some bondage whip, to be fair. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And he said, listen, and he cracked this whip in the middle of the field. And these dogs that had gone quiet now just kicked off. I mean, it was just horrendous. The noise was just shocking. And all I could think was, I'd actually feel really vulnerable, number one. Number two, everything in me wants to go at you because I'm that angry. I don't actually know what to do with my emotion, but I'm out of my depth in a big way. I I suffered it for 10 minutes and left and obviously never rehomed my dog down that route. Um, And that was my impression of security dog training. Um, I know for a fact that isn't what you're involved in at all. And I hope you're busy forging a path to set new standards um because i know you're all over the place with this so is it changing that was several that was probably uh 10 years ago roughly so i'm hopeful it's different now (laughs) yeah um well obviously i've been sort of involved in the the security sector since retirement off and on uh obviously because when you're in the service you you can't get involved externally with with other interests 
So I left the service properly in just just late 2013. And there are there are several bodies out there in the security sector. And there's no doubt the security sector, like all sectors in life, are, are moving forward because they're all being held more accountable Good. and very yeah. So so if you in the security sector, obviously, if we do, if we concentrate on dog handling. But obviously, on the other side, on on the and I use the term missing man guarding or person guarding, if you want to call it, um, there, there are structures and procedures in place, and, and all officers are licensed under the SIA, right. which is what I am as well. But but I chose to go down what we call NASDU, which is the National Association of Security Dog Users, and this is a, a, an organisation that's been in place since 1994. Um, and they have very good structures and very good um, methodology, uh, evidence gathering and various other things. And because of inspection by the, the central office and various other things and feedback from students, I don't dispute what you said 10 years ago, and I'm sure that was the way it was in general terms. Now it has moved forward a lot. Yeah. I think some of that influence is there are a lot of ex-police officers, dog handlers, that are involved in the private security sector. Yeah. So that's brought with them some of their, and I don't mean to use it, uh, you know, dispassionately, but enlightened ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so things have got significantly better. The organisation does have a manual, which is based on the police manual. We have outcomes. So for every role that you undertake, there is a very strict um, evidence gathering uh, procedure and you have to evidence that the, the handler is capable of doing that. And, you know, with there are dogs out there that subscribe to these structures the teams are very good there's no doubt about it and i think that type of instructor is is less and less i, I don't doubt there are still some out there yeah and um, the same as all walks of life it can't be perfect with everybody yeah um but things have changed I, i'm proud of the fact that you know i've worked with people who come to me uh, and I license them and I'll send them away with, a, with an action plan. I won't license them. I'll give them something to aim for before we... And yeah. they're answering, well, can't you just sign me off as competent? No, mm-hmm. it isn't. you're not competent, so you won't go out there. No. And, and there are people like me out there, um, not just me. There's a lot of people out there that have very strict codes and morals. Yeah. And so I've done a lot to bring the security dog handling side forward. So it, it is very professional yeah, good. Um, because it is yeah, again it's an accountable prof- profession you're using a dog in a situation where there could be injury inflicted by your dog so you have to comply with the law understand the law have a properly trained dog and if there is an incident where a dog bites and it goes to court then training records all the training will be brought forward as evidence so yeah. it's come a long way and i could but i can believe how scary that was and oh. it, it makes me cringe to hear about it because that's just so sad well it, and it really was and i was you know much younger then as well as a young female standing there but actually you know me i'm not i'm not shy and retiring <laughs> i do no, i do so no. especially when it comes to animals but you know i felt really gagged i felt really out of my depth and and so yeah, i felt the, like the I, attitude yeah you know making any dog bite yeah, but then all you're doing is getting in to its fear, aren't you? A hundred percent. Into a corner, so there is no way out potentially other than coming forward and biting you, so I can get away. Yeah. And that isn't a stable dog. You don't want a dog like that. Well, no, you know, it's a public that health risk. That doesn't achieve anything. What I want is a dog that sits calmly, um, because there is the threat is low, and it doesn't need to. I don't need to rise up to this threat. The threat heightens. The dog's reaction heightens. It deals with it and instantly comes off. Yeah. You know? yeah. And that, that's one thing I'm very 
critical about, and so all my colleagues in the police service, dogs will come out when they're called. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I've had it, as have my colleagues, where you can send your dog after a suspect, they bite, you get there, you call the dog off, you put the dog in the down, and you search the suspect. Yeah. And the dog doesn't move because it knows I've done the job and I'm now calm and I'll wait here. I'll keep an eye on them. If they, if they run again, Dad, I'll get them for you. Yeah. But, you know, that's how it should be. And I think the security sector is getting significantly better, there's no doubt about it. I think I was one of the most impressive things I've seen. Um, and obviously in the gun dog world, this happens all the time, but I is stopping a dog when they've gone off on their drive. So I watched a working trials test. So it was at, at Keston where the, the Met trained their dogs and they were doing like a, a practice run. And it was a girl actually, and she'd set her dog after a runner and she had to stop him midway. And I mean, she lost it. She was, I mean, it was, you know, normal, just how you'd want to stop anything. She just screamed at him at the top of her voice to get him to do And he just went into a down. That's the expectation the dog should do that. Of course it should, but it's a dog, it's a predator gone off after a criminal that, or a person that is continuing, so prey, that is continuing to run away and has had, you know, that catch reinforced over and over again. And she managed to stop that dog, uh, you know, in, in, actually a really intense difficult situation with lots of people around and you know that control was insane it was just brilliant to watch but it isn't achieved overnight no that's by a significant amount of training but also by breaking it down into its elements of what you want to achieve yeah you know you can't just go from a straight chase and suddenly throw in an emergency stop or an emergency recall (laughs) without having trained it no and and certainly I, i like the emergency recall um the emergency stop works well uh, but the, the emergency recall is also very important similar sort of thing except the dog comes back to the handler yeah but but you replace that desire to go out there and bite with an even greater desire to come back to, to mum or dad because when you get back you get an even greater reward yeah um, and, and that's how but it, it, it is by training and this is also going back to what we said earlier on about selection about getting sensible level-headed dogs that yeah. don't just close down and think biting is my priority and i'll close my ears to everything else yeah. That's not acceptable, and we don't need dogs like that. No. Um, and that's where selection is very key. Uh, and that's going back yet again to the breeding program. You know, when, when I, we were bringing in gift dogs, and, and gift dogs, even when I was a first inspector, were a good, steady source of, of potential dogs from rescue and, and members of the public. You know, our failure rate was about 95%. Wow. And that's, of the, that's of the dogs that, that I brought in. There were many dogs that I didn't even bring in. Um, and we turned that around and with our own breeding program, 85% of what we bred worked. But it's all about the right drives, the right temperament and getting things in the right places. Perfect dog. And that gives you your ideal, you know, police dog. Dave, my time's run out with you because I know you're a very busy man. I need to let you go. And that's been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for giving us a a little window and insight into your world. I think uh, anyone listening who's probably, you know, seen police dogs work and some people just think that just happens. Um, You know, understanding that actually right from breeding and puppy handling up to the dog actually going out and doing the job is a massive time consuming and expensive process. These, These animals are, they're precious when they're born but they're um, extremely precious and, and have a, a huge financial impact when they're out there working. So hopefully yeah. everyone listening will have a, a whole new respect for them now. As you say, you know, police dog handling,
handling, you know, I loved it. Obviously, else I wouldn't have done it for as long as I did. And, and it's got to be one of the, the few occupations in the service where there's a massive long waiting list of people wanting to join because it is the best, you know, I'm yeah. proud to say that, but it is the best job in the service. And, you know, to work with an animal, to, to guide it and get the success with the animal and, and everything that comes with owning that animal is, is tremendous. And, yeah. you know, I was very lucky that, you know, when my dogs retired, I kept them into retirement as well. So yeah. that, that to me was, was the perfect end. Yeah, great, great sort of way, way to make a living, let's put it that way. Yeah, and what I love about you, Dave, is you've got that, that passion what what keeps me doing my job every single day and you know probably still be doing my job every single day until I'm not here anymore is a passion to work with animals which I don't think you get in many other professions and I love to hear that you've you've done all this stuff you've got that you know just that if you sort of break it down into what it is you're getting inside an animal's head yeah uh, and you're getting it to do what you want it to do yeah um but it's only going to do it if it wants to do it with you uh you know yes you can force something but that isn't as good, is it? If you're forcing a dog to do something, it's no. like a person. If you force a person to do something under duress, they don't do it to their optimum and they don't enjoy it. I love my animals to enjoy what they do. And all the guys and girls I worked with, they're the same. They want their dogs to love what they do because yeah. you know it, it, it's a great thing to work with an animal and, and to achieve some success. And, and luckily, we turn our success into keeping people safe. Oh, we did. I yeah. keep talking as though I'm still there, but I'm not. <laughs> I don't think I, I think and my dad's no longer with us sadly he didn't even get to retire in the end before he had a cardiac cardiac arrest but um, I think he, I don't think he'd have coped without Met Police blood running through his veins at all anyway no, so that's right. how I deal with it <laughs> but um, Dave thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure go, I'd love to have you back and we can just right, talk well, we'll send talk dog stuff so uh, yeah we'll, uh, we'll I'll give you a break to go off and do what you need to do and maybe we'll see you again in, I'll speak to you again in a few weeks have a fantastic right, day thank thanks again I'll talk to you soon bye 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 that's it for today guys thank you so much for listening I hope you really enjoyed my chat with Dave McIver he certainly is a really intuitive and passionate dog handler and it was lovely to hear some of his experiences in the police force Um, hopefully as I say we will get him back and uh, have a really good chat about scent and how to train your dog to scent so I'll organise that at some point soon if you like today and you want to hear more then please do subscribe to my channel and hopefully you'll hear from me again really soon. Take care.